Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name's Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. Today's episode is number 31, and we have a wonderful guest. His name is Kurt Winham, and he is going to talk about teens and self-harm. I thought this was a really important topic to put on the podcast. It's not directly related to addiction, but I think it has a lot of similarities to how when we're dealing with uncomfortable affective states, uncomfortable emotions that we don't like, how we find ways to cope with those emotions and how we usually try and find ways that work fast. And when we find those ways, they may not always be the most constructive or best way to deal with it. So Kurt's going to talk about that. And um, I really appreciate his wisdom and time for coming onto the podcast. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really helps our exposure. I really appreciate it. Also, once again, I love your comments on the blogs. Please keep those coming. I love hearing from you guys and hear what you guys think about the episode and other questions that you have. So thank you to everyone who's done that. I really appreciate it. So let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I have a wonderful guest today. His name is Kurt Woodhelm, and he is a licensed marriage and family therapist in the Los Angeles area and has a private practice there. He's also the co-host of the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Uh, Kurt, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm in private practice in the Los Angeles area. I specialize in working with adolescents, and within that One of my primary focuses is in self-harm and cutting behaviors. I'm also the co-host of the Therapist Geared podcast, The Modern Therapist Survival Guide. So if there's any therapists out there, you can check us out. Our website is mtsgpodcast.com. My practice website is kurtwithelm.com. Awesome. Thanks for giving me that information. And I would encourage everybody to check that out. It's uh, really an awesome podcast. If you're a therapist out there and you want really good information, I'd encourage you guys to to listen to it. Okay, Kurt, let's let's jump into our, our topic and kind of start to talk about this because I think this is something that especially parents want to know about it. And especially if they're seeing some signs in their in their teenager of this of this problem. 
Sure. So one of the first questions that I usually get asked is, why do teens engage in self-harming behavior? And throughout today, I'll use self-harming or cutting kind of interchangeably. But why do teens do this? A lot of people have heard of some version of this is a cry for attention. Is this a sign towards suicidality? And I largely break them into two separate categories. One is a category of teenagers who are really struggling with being able to have a opportunity to show their emotions, that they have a very, very low ceiling for experiencing emotions. And they do this as a emotional release. The other group of teenagers that I see doing this quite often are those who do it as part of an attention-seeking behaviors. And this is usually accompanied by group of other students within either their school or their peer groups who are also engaging in these behaviors. And there's kind of a social acceptance among being able to all engage in the same types of unhealthy behaviors. Can you, can you talk a little bit about when, when you say self-harm behaviors, what, is, what does that mean actually? What does that look like? How would we, what kind of behaviors are that? Self-harm typically refers to cutting, which tends to be the most popular, whether this is with razor blades or knives or scissors or any number of other things. In fact, I've seen some creative clients come into my office that have managed to do it with pencil erasers. So it's behavior that typically breaks the skin, causes some sort of physical pain as a way of releasing emotional distress. Okay. So it can also include things like burning, people who put out cigarettes on themselves, over-exercise is even an example of this, and some of these behaviors then are used in drugs or other sorts of unhealthy coping mechanisms. So they're trying to actually create some kind of pain response in order to deal with an emotion or release an emotion or, you know, why would, why would, yeah, why, why would a teen want to cause pain to themselves? So for a lot of these types of clients that I see in my office or a lot of teenagers who engage in these behaviors, what is happening is that either their schedules are so busy that they don't really have time to deal with the day-to-day stress that accumulates or they are existing in some sort of environment where they're not feeling that their emotions can be reflected or understood. And so what happens is that they see emotions in general as something that should be stayed away from. And the body has a way of releasing that energy. It's not able to continue to stuff down emotions. And what happens in the developmental teenage brain is that they are looking for a release for this, that the body can't hold that stress, that trauma throughout the entire day. And so by not really experiencing the emotions on a day-to-day basis, they need some sort of outlet for it. And it's almost like a foreign language. So they get to a point where they don't understand what's going on in themselves. They don't understand what's going on around them. And a very, very short behavior that can create a physical pain is a way for them to make sense of the pain that they're experiencing in a very, very understandable way. If a teenager is able to look down at their arm, their leg, wherever that they happen to be engaging in this behavior, then they can see the blood and they can understand that kind of pain. A physical pain is a good representation of it. Whereas emotional pain is something that's kind of amorphous. It can't be touched. It can't be seen. And the teen brain is trying to have a place to focus all of that negative energy. 
Right. So they'll do it in that physical way. And do they get kind of a, a release when they, so when they actually do it, they get a release? They do get a release that it's usually a very, very short behavior. It almost looks impulsive, although it's done usually quite intentional. And what this does is allows for all of that stress that's built up throughout the day to be released all at once, allows them to regain their focus and be able to move on with the rest of their day. And okay, so you had mentioned kind of earlier that there were teens that maybe had super busy schedules or were living in an environment that maybe didn't allow them to have emotional expression. How, as a, as a parent, I'm thinking like, how would I notice this? Like, how would I see this or be aware of this? So a lot of the literature or the websites that are geared towards parents are going to give some pretty good common Science. This is definitely covering up a lot of the body, even when the weather might not be appropriate. So wearing long sleeves during hot weather, this is a fairly typical one. For females, it's wearing a lot of bracelets, bracelets that might be covering up their wrists. And other times it might just be completely withdrawing. But one of the great signs to really look at is, is your teenager talking about other people who are engaging in cutting or other self-harm behaviors. This is going to encompass kind of that second group that I talked about in that if there is this attention acceptance that is being sought after, typically there's somebody else in their lives who's given them this idea or given them some tips on how to do it or how to hide it from parents. Typically, the places that I see most often that teens do engage in these behaviors are in the arms or the upper thighs or in the stomach area. And these are areas that are used because they are fairly easily covered up. Mm -hmm. You might also look at a teenager who's explaining away kind of repeated injuries in a way that doesn't necessarily seem typical. So if they're saying that, oh, I got scratched by a cat and you don't have a cat, that's probably a sign that you might want to look into things a little bit more closely. Right. So they they can be pretty creative about hiding this. What, what kind of emotional signs would a parent might notice in a kid who has a potential for this or is it, it kind of maybe in that space where this becomes an option for them? So if we really conceptualize this from the signs of not having the emotional wherewithal to really experience and express a lot of their feelings, the very first sign to look for is withdrawal. That if it's a teenager who's kind of hiding themselves away, is not really engaging with family or friends, doesn't really have a healthy emotional outlet in one way or another, it's a sign that you might want to look at how they are coping with the day-to-day stresses of their lives. You might also see a lot of anger in or rage in some of the teens who engage in these behaviors because, again, it's a quick way to get rid of a lot of very bad feelings and to be able to move past those. You might also see some anxiety. Do see some panic attacks that correlate very, very highly with the number of self-injury behaviors that a teen might engage in. So really, really intense emotions are another sign that you might be looking for. Okay, okay. What about when you talk about teens using this as a as a way to cope? What I also think about is 
when kids kind of turn to a substance or some other kind of behavior to also cope with these kind of overwhelming emotions that they're having and uh, kind of setting them up for drug abuse or substance abuse or anything like that. So where this is slightly different than substance abusing teens is that these students who are overly scheduled, whether it's swim practice, cheerleading practice, piano practice, doing homework for, for AP classes, studying late into the night, then what the substance abusing teens usually have the option of is some sort of flexibility in their schedule to go out and engage in those behaviors. Teens who engage in self-harm often are looking for some sort of release in the very, very late hours of the night when it might not be an option to go out and meet with their friends. It might not be an option to sneak in drinking. It's something that needs to be taken care of by themselves very, very quickly. And then for them to be able to go on either with more studying or to be able to find the center in themselves in order to be able to go and sleep. So these are teens, like in this kind of section of self-harm, these are teens that are under tremendous amount of probably pressure outside of them and of, of themselves. And then probably I would imagine some real internal pressure to perform. I mean, it sounds like, gosh, that would be really hard to keep up with all of that. Absolutely. And that's something that I see consistently across a number of my clients, that there's usually some sort of expectation. It might have started out as an external pressure, but really becomes internalized as to not having the room to make mistakes or be a failure. And I see that often translated into having emotions makes me a failure. Having negative emotions makes me a failure. And there's a really big imposter syndrome that comes around that where they don't see the people that they're competing against having these kinds of stressors either. So it makes them feel even weaker. Right. And so I would imagine, do you find that their parents are also extremely driven or extremely driving their kids as well as they kind of this pressure that gets put on them? Or are these kids doing it themselves? I, I see it both ways. I see definitely some very pushy parents, some very over-involved parents who are only focused on the outcomes of what their child is engaging in. I also tend to see some withdrawn parents who just kind of are leaving their kids out to go and do their own thing and be successful. And for whatever reason, the child in both of these cases is taking on the responsibility of an internal critic that is constantly never good enough to perform for either parent. It's In the first case, it's not enough that's ever going to make mom or dad happy enough with how I performed. Or two, it's with a parent who's never going to notice no matter how good I do. Right, right. And so they're con they, they feel that, that intense pressure. They either feel it or they misinterpret what their parents are doing and are creating that feeling for themselves. Okay, okay. And so when kids start to come to you for, when these teenagers start to come for help, how do they usually start to reach out or how does that start to, to happen? So usually the time that I am brought into one of these families' lives is after a parent has noticed that their child is engaging in these behaviors. And a lot of times in that very, very first intake session with teens, I really try to establish that I'm not judging the behaviors, that I tend to see self-harm at the non-suicidal level as being more of a symptom of an emotional problem than a problem in and of itself. 
Uh, I do distinguish between suicidal and non-suicidal self-injury because there is major differences between the two. Uh, suicidal injury is more about attempting to kill themselves. And more often what my focus is on is the non-suicidal self-injury. And so I really try to establish with the teen's understanding and an empathy for what they're bringing up. That I, I know that just even by engaging in these behaviors, by coming to me, what they're really looking for is validation of what they're going through isn't a weakness. It isn't some sort of character flaw in themselves, but is a chance to broaden out their ability to handle a wider range of emotions. Right. Okay. And how do they, when this behavior is starting to be kind of confronted, how do they respond to the idea that, hey, maybe this isn't helping you? Do they have a difficult time stopping or do they kind of realize, yeah, this isn't helping or or are they really tied into this behavior? Most of them know that it is not a helping behavior, but it's something that is able to move them on with their lives very, very quickly. Emotionally, they don't understand this, but cognitively, usually these teens are very, very smart and they understand that what they're doing isn't healthy. And this is where I really look at it more from a biological drive just in the way that the teen brain develops, that I can get really nerdy with all of the science stuff, but there does become kind of that fight or flight activation when emotions come, that rather than what we would experience as fully developed adults looking at something like a car driving down the street way too quickly at us and activating that response, the way that the teen brain develops and the way that this emotional capacity develops around it just makes it to where any emotions look like that car driving too fast. Mm -hmm. So what they're responding from is not that cognitive portion of the brain. They're responding more from that emotional part, and they're just trying to get rid of those feelings. So to answer your question, most of the time they know that this is not a good behavior. But by the time that they're engaging in these behaviors, they're not operating from that knowing part of their brain. They're just looking for that, that relief. Yes, they're looking for something to get rid of these overpowering feelings so that way they can continue to do all of the things that they are getting praise for, whether it's grades, whether it's performance, whether it's anything else that they're really seeking that validation for. It's interesting when you talk about that because working in the addiction field and especially like working with behavior addictions, it's almost in a way that same kind of drive, how do I get out of the state that I'm in right now? Like, I just can't tolerate how I feel in this moment. And anything that can quickly get me out of it is the solution. And it seems like when we look at addiction, it seems like people find their way, if that makes sense. If they don't know how to regulate it in a healthy way, they'll find a way to get out. Right. And this is where a lot of the teens that I treat can be at risk for then picking up substances as a new coping mechanism for what they're going through. They might also have their symptoms jump to eating disorders or some sort of other way to create a, a control over their lives. And I do see a certain amount of sexual acting out that goes along with this too. And a lot of this does come from more of that limbic system part of the brain that is looking for some sort of release as a way of coping with those emotional issues. Right. And I think everybody kind of finds their path if they if they don't know how they don't know how to regulate or they have that kind of affective dysregulation, 
they find their path. Um, one question that was kind of coming up for me is also as these teens get older, do they struggle with a lot of like burnout? I mean, I listen to these stories of some of these teenagers in high school and, and I'm like, oh my gosh, these teens are working like crazy. Like they're doing, you know, five activities and homework and this. And it's like, do they burn out eventually if, if they don't uh, get some support? I do see a lot of burnout. And that's part of why the teens engage in these behaviors in the first place is this is kind of that last push to keep it going just a little bit more. Or I start to see panic attacks really developing. And I help my teens and their families conceptualize it as if they're not taking the emotional space to really replenish their energy, really be able to set themselves in a good centered place, that the body has a way of making it happen, really putting kind of a lid on how far that it's going to allow itself to be stressed out and burned out. And so burnout is really, really high for those who can't put in those healthy coping skills to self-care and to be able to do their day-to-day commitments on an ongoing basis. Wow. I mean, that sounds like um, this is such uh, needed work for these teens. I, I mean, as you're telling these stories, I, I feel bad for these teens who, are, who have this, they have this burden on themselves that maybe doesn't even need to be there, that here they are working so hard and it's like, oh, I want to like reach out to them and just give them a break. <laughs> I do too. And this is really very easy looking clients for a lot of therapists that they there's a lot of therapists who would love to work with the star of the football team or the head cheerleader or the student who's getting all straight A's. They seem like very, very easy students. They're able to outthink a lot of even very intelligent adults. But it's something where having the skills to get to kind of that deeper level and to find where those weaknesses are and to be brave enough to really go into the emotional areas and getting teens who really have convinced themselves the emotions are a weakness to be more expressive of themselves. That's really where a lot of the challenge comes from. And in building that connection allows for a lot more exploration of growth. So that way there is a, it might be an opportunity to step back in their lives a little bit, not achieve so much all at once, but in the long run, it allows them to reach greater and greater heights. Do you kind of, as I'm, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking like, I would imagine in the beginning, these teens might see you in a way, I mean, maybe, I don't want to, maybe this is too strong a word like the enemy, because if, if you're going to tell them to slow down, how in the world are they going to do all that they have to do? So as a therapist, you're telling them like, hey, give yourself a break. And they're saying, I can't give myself a break. I would imagine that's a hard uh, kind of dichotomy to, to work through. And that's where that work doesn't really start until that really good connection between the client and the therapist is really established. And I get there by really normalizing the behaviors in the first place and telling them that while the goal might be to stop cutting, it might be to stop burning. I'm not going to ask them to do that initially right? because that's the skill that they have. And what I want to do is I want to teach them other skills. And I want to show them, first of all, that I'm not scared of the behaviors that they're talking about. I'm not scared of talking about blood. I'm not scared of talking about the 
other things that they might be going through on a physical level. So that way I'm establishing that I'm a safe person or I'm somebody who understands where they're coming from and can guide them to healthier coping mechanisms along the way. Right. So that they can, you have to really build that trust that you've got there. You're, you're on their side. Uh, that just sounds like that takes a lot of work and a lot of patience and a, and a very special um, kind of touch to be able to to connect with those teenagers. And it's something that I love doing. And I was fortunate enough that I got licensed when I was in my mid-20s. So working with teens was kind of a very easy path of least resistance in creating a specialty. And I've really enjoyed it because it allows me to just be a little bit more goofy than what maybe some therapists would traditionally be. And that really allows for that connection to happen really, really well. Oh, that's awesome. So I have a, I have a question. You know, if anybody's listening to this podcast, maybe a teen might be listening or a parent, what would you, what would you want to tell them? I would say that really find somebody who you can talk with who doesn't necessarily just want to answer back or provide all of the answers. And I think that a lot of times the validation that's needed from or for the teenagers is going to go further than almost anything else. And I really work with a lot of parents on it's not about stopping whatever behavior is going on. If we're really looking at this as an emotional need that needs to be met, the best thing that we can do is listen. And that's going to allow for that emotional experience to grow ever so slowly. It's to really provide an opportunity for teens to not feel judged and to have the opportunity to make mistakes. And I think that there's so much fear of making mistakes that teens would rather just shut in and shut everybody else out. And so for any teens who might be listening, it's there are adults out there who understand what you're going through and it might take a little bit of work and a little bit of trust that you don't have in them quite yet, but you can dip your toes in that, in that water and to really take it one step at a time to know that people can hear you, that they can understand you and then they're not just going to tell you what to do next. Oh, that's, that's an awesome message. Kurt, thank you so much for, for coming on and sharing your knowledge and wisdom with everybody. I, I think it's going to be really helpful for a lot of, lot of people. I just really appreciate you coming on and spending your time here. Absolutely. It's something that I love talking about. It's something that I love sharing my knowledge on because for a lot of the teens that I see coming through my office, I know that I can only do so much. So anything that I can do to provide help on the bigger picture, I'm really, really glad that I have the opportunity to do that. Awesome. How, how can people get a hold of you? If they, if they, wanna, if they have more questions and, and they want to find out more, how can they get a hold of you? The best way to find me is my website, www.kurtwithelm.com. My email address, my phone number are both up there. So you can always reach out to me. I'm glad to provide a few minutes of consultation as it fits in my schedule. And I know some other great treatment providers across the country. And I know some signs of therapists that you might not want to work with, depending on what your situation is. And there's some really key differences in how to go about treating this from one provider to another. So I'm more than happy to share my expertise in that. Awesome. And you also have a wonderful podcast for therapists out there. Can you mention that as well? 
The Modern Therapist Survival Guide is my podcast with my co-host Katie Vernoy, and we talk about issues that face therapists in the 21st century around building a practice and around building an identity. Our website is mtsgpodcast.com, and we love sharing how our therapist journey has brought us to where we are and how we envision therapists going forward. Awesome, Kurt. Thank you so much. I'm going to have all that information on the website as well. So you guys can check it out there. Kurt, once again, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks everyone for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As always, the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 31. Once again, If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. It really does help get us a lot of exposure, and I really appreciate it. So until next week, have a wonderful day. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.